All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have legendary bass player and writer Eddie Shaw of The Monks. The Monks were a group of five American GIs stationed in West Germany in 1964. The group started as a traditional rock and roll group playing standards and hour-long bar gigs, but due to boredom, experimentation, and by chance, they developed a sound that was uniquely their own that no one else had or would have. They had the music of the future at that time. Some now might describe it as punk. The monks would take hypnotic rhythms, they would minimalize melody, and with the shrill and confrontational vocals of their singer Gary and David Day's electronic banjo, which supplied a completely unique rhythm section that no other band had. And with feedback, they made an experimental avant-garde sound that no one of that time has ever heard of. And we probably wouldn't have heard of it if it wasn't for record crate diggers and collectors diving into the history and finding this proto-punk experimental avant-garde record of the monks and sharing it with the world, people like Henry Rollins and Jelly Biathra. And one thing else that added to their legend is they all dressed up like monks. They would wear black robes and they had the, the haircut. So not only was their music confronting, aggressive, and strange and experimental, but now they're putting on this whole character that people at that time didn't know how to handle. It's the most punk rock thing. They were going as the anti-Beatles, so they said. So the record got distributed in Germany, and then they eventually got to a point where they weren't getting too far, and people weren't latching on to the music of the future. They had a tour that was going to go through South Asia and end up in Vietnam during the time of the Vietnam War. And right before they were about to embark on that, the drummer bailed, and the whole band fell apart, and everyone moved back to America. Years later, in the 90s, record crate diggers found this record of Black Muck Time and brought it back out, and then it finally got released in America. And they had an awesome tour, and they got to get the recognition they deserved. There's a really cool documentary called Transatlantic Feedback, which goes through their whole tale through Germany and winds up showing them touring America, getting the recognition they deserve. So, my conversation with Eddie happened um, yesterday morning, and uh, it was right off the heels of uh, my band. I play in a band called Sea Level Literacy Dash. We opened up for the Bumping Uglies at the West Side Bowl in Youngstown, Ohio. So that went pretty late. I didn't get home until 3 in the morning and woke up really early to uh, talk with Eddie. It took a little bit to get into the swing of it, but Eddie shared some insane stories, like playing with gas masks on and hanging out with Jimi Hendrix. And then we also dive into writing and what it takes to be a writer and some of the techniques and skills he learned from being in one of the most unique and kind of controversial bands of his time to applying those skills and being an author and moving from that. It was an honor to have this conversation with Eddie, and I'm really excited to share this with you guys. Before that, if you guys can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and any of the podcast platforms and helps me keep talking to cool guests like Eddie and sharing their insight with you. Now, without further ado, here is my conversation with the great Eddie Shaw. Well, to jump into it, you started off on drums, right? Um, I played drums. Um, I, my first lessons were drum lessons. No, my first lessons were steel guitar lessons, and then I went to drums. Steel guitar? Like lap steel? Yeah, rock steel. Steel guitar. Wow. That's it. Was that like a... Uh, who, 
Carol Carol Kay, the bass player from um all the Motown records, that was her uh-huh. thing. That was her first instrument too. Was that kind of a popular first instrument? Well, it was uh, somebody come to the neighborhood and sold my mom on a guitar lesson, and she. And the next thing I knew, I was learning how to play a guitar, but I didn't care for it that much. Did it make sense, or was it just like hard, or like a distinct? No, land? It, it wasn't. It wasn't hard or anything. It just it didn't it didn't pique my interest too much. The drums did. And the drums were in in Marysville, California, at a, at a grammar school. Jumping from that, when did it go to trumpet? Um, when I was in the sixth grade, the music teacher came to my house and told my parents that I needed to play trumpet because I was because I was um, I was short. I was a little bit small compared to most kids at the time, and. Uh, and he said the trumpet i i could match i could play that without having to worry about you know a clarinet where your fingers are too small to cover the holes or or anything like that you know and so i started playing trumpet and uh, I, my parents bought a trumpet for $35 and we had a barn next door or, uh, next to the house and um my kid came over and showed me the scale and I learned the scale the first day, and and from that I I could just play it by ear. So it just clicked. It was it was uh it was like, it, it was uh I was born for it I guess. <laughs> so like, during like the kind of discovery leading up to the trumpet, was jazz always kind of like your influence? Yes. Yeah, so, well, I first of all in school I played Dixieland. You know, my, uh, uh, Louis Armstrong, all that kind of stuff. And we in a jazz band, in a Carson High School jazz band. And uh, uh, then from there, but then I learned, I heard jazz. And, and first I was turned on by Dave Brubeck. And I, after that, I just listened to jazz and Miles Davis. And I tried to emulate him. And, uh, yeah, that was basically the thing that got me going with jazz. It's interesting because it's kind of like a, a going from Dixieland to, like, Miles Davis and especially the Coltrane. It's it's kind of like yeah. that search for, like, kind of absolute freedom, like Coltrane kind of got to in his, like, later albums. Yeah, it was, it was playing, you know, the notes and... And making them up as you go. That absolute free expression. And it's interesting because, like, the monks kind of, I feel like from the tour case to the monks, is that kind of practice. It was a little bit because we were five separate individuals with different tastes in music. And the one thing that we could do together was is try to forget our, our particular styles and work with each other to match the other person's style, and uh, and so I I gave up jazz, so to speak. But at the same time, some of the principles of, of uh, improvising and using beats and so forth uh, still applied. 
And I imagine kind of jumping from a melodic instrument, or from, sorry, from a rhythmic instrument, the drums, to a, a melodic instrument, then hopping in on bass, those kind of skill sets were primed for that. Yeah, they were, well, the, the bass, uh, I heard them playing, and they were playing three-chord three rock and roll, you know. Uh, Lewis, you know, uh, I forget his name. But uh, after listening to that, I went and bought a bass and just played the three chords, and then I went down and, and yeah, it worked. It matched with with their style at the moment. So, like, when you were on, because um, those were the music service clubs, right? Where you yes. heard them, and they were going as the rhythm rockers. Yes, they were. They were. They didn't play any place. Well, they went down to a certain bar in Gelnhausen, and they would put a, a a hat out and play and play for music in order to get in the hat. Was there like a like, just kind of hearing that? Or you're like, I want to do that. I can do that. Like, or is I? Well, I, I, I. It was more like I got this. I because I. I played uh, I played in a country western band. I played in a Dave Rubeck type band. I played drums for them. Yeah. And and um in um in the primary training and boot camp I played uh, drums and the same guys we came across this, the Atlantic on uh, on a boat and we played uh, for the officers clubs and stuff like that. And then when I was over, when I was in Germany, we got separated. And then I played with a different group that was a country and Western group. And I played drums for them. And then when they broke up or there was the officer or the sergeant who was um, ahead of that, he, he left. And and then I I was bored and I had to find something to do. And so I went to the service club and saw those guys practicing in a small room and says, well, I'm going to try that. It's amazing, like, just the, the versatility to be able to hop into all those groups because the drum with a group like a Dave Brubeck group that's doing odd time signatures, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then they'd be like, I can hang in a, three, a one, four, five rock band, you know? It, it, it has to be that drive or just board them to, to do something. Um, yeah, well, your you, your your main job they warn you every day is to go out and and kill commies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and you and you say I don't want to do that. I, I would want to do something that's fun. Yeah. Did um, like I guess that kind of like militants like, did you find music kind of like the practice of music and the like structuredness of being in the army? Like, did you? find like a similarity between the two that made it I mean I, I, there's no easy way to like do any military work but as far as like the headspace of doing a routine and sticking to a, a, a discipline did you find that music well, kind of helped I never thought about it but that maybe that makes a little bit of sense uh, in the sense that we could we could all uh, concentrate on one thing and even if and in this case, with the monks, it was, it was, uh, well, setting down a beat, you know, 
you know, bump, 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 or bump, 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 you know, and you just do it, and then it makes, and everybody has to find their own beat in it, you know, and that's how we did it. Is that the the concept of the Uber beat? Yeah. Yeah, I was basing drums who lays down the, the first outline of what it's going to be, and then, then the banjo fills it in and the organ fills it in. The banjo comes next and plays. Dave would play the rhythms uh, to it, and, and then uh, then uh, Gary would uh, uh, sing some notes. We all, well, as a tour case, we all sang, but in the monks, we decided for commercial sake that it was best to have Gary singing. He had a better voice for that. You guys all had good voices, too. Like, even with the, the stuff when you're trying to soften it up in the later singles, I'm like, these harmonies are mm-hmm. tight. Yeah, well, that comes from playing eight hours a night, seven nights a week, uh, for three years we worked I think three years we might have had three nights off and it would be eight hours on many nights uh, depending where we were some places you play from nine to three in the morning and then on Sundays you play two hours in the afternoon that gives you eight hours on stage and you and you play different places like Stuttgart and you you get you you just start doing it automatically, you know. You can you can do it without uh, having to think about it. Like with the Torquays, there was a one club in particular I read um, that you guys had to bring gas masks. No, we didn't have to bring gas masks. We would we would play in in, in Gelnhausen. It, after we became the Torquays, we got a job at the Maxim Bar in Geldhausen, and it was a GI hangout. And the GIs, you'd start in the evening, and they would be all sober and dancing and nice to one another and the girls and stuff like that. But as the evening wore on, when the drinks get uh, drunk, you know, they they start getting feisty with one another and the next thing you know is a fight breaks out and things happen and this particular club had a it was surrounded by a balcony up above and chairs would come flying off the balcony you name it and the only person who always came prepared was larry and he'd bring his gas mask and he would just stay on the stage and play the gas mask while we all ran for cover. And then he, then he, at the end of the night, he'd tell the owner, he says, "We played the whole set. You got to pay us." Man, but the, to have to do that at one point, you, the guy had to be like, "Yeah, you guys didn't play the whole set. Pay you tomorrow." Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> um, and that happened more than once, though, right? That was kind of a. It happened, yeah, yeah. He, he, we would complain about it, and Larry would say, "I told you to bring your gas mask, you stupid people." That's crazy. It's it, 
with any like creative endeavor, you look at the absurdness you go through to do it. <laughs> like that's so <laughs> crazy. Well, you don't think about it. You're you're young, you know. Yeah. And it's like young people don't really have any awareness of danger, you know. Yeah. At least until you so, until you break the bone or sprain the ankle or can't move the hand the same way or <laughs> any, any of that stuff can happen on any given moment. That's true. That's true. Um, so the kind of like so it goes from rhythm rockers to torques, right? I think there's a couple lineup changes in between, and then well, I, I, I wasn't in the rhythm rockers. It was just Gary and and Dave. Oh, okay. And they they played. They went to a bar and played in the bar with their with a hat on the floor for money. And then when you joined, it became the Torques. Well, when when we got a group together, finally five people playing regular songs. Yeah, then it became the Torques. Eight hour sets, six hour sets. Are you? Like, cause I, in, I do a lot of bar gigs too. And it's like, but I'm looking at like three or four hours, man. And like, you can, you burn through a lot of tunes and you, you find yourself doing a lot when you do the next gig that's similar to that. Right. Um, well, yeah, you're experimenting. And one thing you do is you learn how to experiment with the audience. You play with them. Yeah. You, uh, you watch them. And if they're all bored, if they're all talking to one another and, you know, saying, hi, how are you doing? They're all having a good time talking to each other. Then you know you got to do something to make them stop it because you want them to watch you. What are some things you guys would do? What are some tricks? Yeah. Well, we'd turn on the feedback. Yeah. And that would get them. That would, that would be like shocked deer, you know, in a headlight. You know, they'd all be shocked and they'd stop and look at you and then you'd smile at them and, and and break up their conversation so that they basically would look at each other with puzzled looks on their face and what are they doing? It's interesting with feedback and how it captures an audience's attention is like kind of crazy. You know what I mean? Because like the, the, it's almost the effort of let letting go musically with an electronic insert, like an electric guitar, or turning the mic the wrong way. No matter what, that's like, huh? You know, everyone's like, what? Or like, alarmed. And like, it's a yeah. Well, I, last night I went to a, a thing called Debouch, Debouch, Virginia City, which is here in Nevada, and it's a. Uh, it's a old ghost town. Well, it's not a ghost town anymore. But anyway, they, Piper's Opera House, and they had a event there. And the band's playing that. Everybody uses feedback now. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> like, you guys prove it works. <laughs> <laughs> was it a... Who who was playing? Who'd you go see? Uh, we saw Subsonics. Uh, Billy uh, Childish. Okay. And somebody else. I forget their name. But there were three different groups playing. And and uh, my wife and I were there. We were 
we were invited to come sell books, so we had a little booth where we sold books. Because it, what, like, I guess it kind of jumps into another question I had with like, so like with just the kind of the discipline of the army and music. You, after everything, you go to school for writing. Did you like? Did that discipline carry over? Was writing like a? Did you find it had that same kind of excitement, expression-wise, as music did? Yes, I did. And my teacher, Gil Ralston, was a very excellent teacher. And basically, he told me, he said, when I first applied to go to go to his classes, he he told me, he says, I don't take anybody who. Well, we. If you're going to go to my class, you have to write. We don't talk about writing. You have to write. And he says, I don't care what, if I don't care about your grammar or anything like that. I just want you to write. And so, so, and he thought he got rid of me by telling me, well, if you're going to show up to my class, the first class you got to show up, you got to bring 120 pages. Wow. And then after that, then after that, you got to do 60 pages a week. And I did it for five years. And like, is it free form? Is it just like, it just just write? Just writing, and okay. the writing, you learn from the writing what your form is going to be just from doing that. Through doing this relentless, just kind of being at it, you see, like, yeah, it's yeah, doing it. Okay. What? What? When did you start to notice your form, and what did that look like? Um. Well, it, it it kicked in pretty quickly, and uh, Gil Wallace and I, I've got about seven books I haven't published yet, and I've still got to figure out what to do with them, but it's, you, I used uh, the, I don't know, the first person sometimes, and then the third person, first person, third person, that sort of thing. Like the... And... Uh, switching between the two? Yeah. Okay, okay. And uh, basically, uh, you just, you you kind of get a rhythm going. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've been diving into trying to, like, do descriptive writing to kind of, like, aid in, like, songwriting and... And, and just thinking that way. And uh, forever, I've always wanted to be good at it, you know. And I, I, I try just to write a bit every day, you know. Um, but that's really interesting to hear that that's the, that's the process and finding, finding that out of the madness. And it makes so much sense, like, compared to, like, music. Like, you learn... Well, it's to... like Gil said, Gil said, he says, don't worry about the grammar because when people talk, people don't use correct grammar. And he says, if you just talk in a natural voice, you'll find out what your voice is after a while. Really well said. I'm, I'm gonna try to crank out sixty pages. <laughs> like, that's hard, man. Wow. Um, so okay, so that's like, like, but that's really relative to like your whole musical journey, like finding this, like, this, this form and striving for freedom. Well, it's. it's Music is a language, and it's uh, it's an art, I guess. I, I, you know, you can think of all the heavy um, uh, synonyms you might want to use with it, or the descriptions. 
but it's 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 an important thing, you know. I think animals sing, you know, people sing. Every you know, everybody does. So, kind of jumping back. So the Torques are playing. You guys are doing hour long sets, and you're tricking the audience to get their attention. And the feedback thing is is really kicking. There's one point where um, is it Dave leaves his banjo? Or leaves his guitar. It would have been a guitar at the time. And then... Yeah, Gary left his guitar. He had to, we, were, we were practicing in the afternoon, and he had to go to the bathroom, and he left it. He, we had it turned up kind of loud, and he set it against the amplifier, went to the bathroom while he was gone. It started humming, and then it just grew into a roar, you know. And Roger and I were bored, and we just started playing some beat to it. And he goes come back and says, "Oh God, I got to do something." And he started hammering something out on it, and we it was a beginning. And then that was discovering the fire. Yeah, just discovering the fire, right? It's and it's great that, but that that reflects so much in what you just said about writing, like just doing the stuff, and then you find it. And so, did... yeah, it, it's there, you know, it's everybody, every, everybody's got a voice and, uh, people who spend time writing, I think it's a, it's a method that I don't know if anybody uses it in college classes or not, but I know it worked for me. He, uh, was this through college or this was like his own class to jump back to the, your writing teacher? He. He was a writer who did uh, movies, uh, wrote for movies, and he, he he's known as Bill uh, 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 Gilbert Alexander, or, wait, yeah, Gilbert Alexander, I think. I, I forgot his name now. Uh, I mean, his, I just know him as Gil Rawlson, and he became like my second father. And uh, he, he he's dead now, but uh, but he told you know he just told the class. I I was one that gave him sixty pages a week, and and from that he, I learned you know what he was talking about. It was there's no talking, right? We're not going to sit here in the class and talk about writing. We're going to write. Well, you know, I I think that's a big part of it. I think a lot of people get in their heads with like, am I writing something good? And even with music, am I writing a song that's good? Or, you know, it, where it almost becomes just a numbers game for a music for a song, right? You just keep writing, and eventually you have one that clicks, and then two, and then you have a set, and like it grows from that. Yeah, you 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 find little clicks, little clicks that click in your in your in your style, and they work for you. Did a so when you moved back to America from this whole adventure, which I know, sorry, I'm skipping around a lot, but it, did, how long after that did you start taking these writing classes, and did that kind of help move back home? Well, uh, I went to, I went to Minneapolis. I come to Nevada, and then I went from Nevada to Minneapolis to go to school to study. Uh, electronic computing, electronics, and broadcasting. 
And while I was there, I met a saxophone player who played just like Coltrane. And so I played trumpet with him, and then we formed a team, and then we we worked in uh, in a group called Minnesota, M-I-N-S-O-D-A, Minnesota. And uh, we recorded in Nashville and Chicago, RCA, Chicago, Capitol Records in Nashville. And uh, I did that for three or four years. And then uh, that band broke up. I And I came home, not intending to stay, but I, while I was here, I uh, heard about this writer who had classes for writing. And I, I uh, followed him around. I caught him in a store, you know, and told him I had a manuscript or something. And, and he kept ignoring me. But finally, after about third time I met him someplace, he says, okay, you come on, on a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. I came five minutes to 7, knocks on his door, and he says, it's not 7. Come back at 7. <laughs> uh, the punctuality. Um, <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> like, um, was... Uh, um, Minnesota was that Copperhead at first, right? Yeah, that was Copperhead. So, like, I guess from going from the monks to uh, Minnesota, like, did like what were some of the lessons that kind of carried over band wise that worked right away with this new group? Well, I just yeah, I we were a band, we were a cover band, and, and I, Rick and I were playing, and uh, and I, you know. I encouraged everyone to write music. Let's write, do our own stuff. Let's not do somebody else's stuff. And we went off and did improvisation more in a jazz, jazz-type form, you know, which was, we went from being spare minimalists and monks to over-elaborate Guys, you know, pl- playing very intricate things in Minnesota. It's like a huge step from one to the next. Was there like mm-hmm. enough time in between that, like, it made it? It had to be refreshing to kind of like step in a different mindset and be like, okay, instead of nothing here, we're gonna fill as many. I'm gonna impose some changes. <laughs> like, well, I, it was my passion for three years with them. I was, I. Was, uh, Bob Johnson, who was, uh, he produced uh, uh, everyone from Elvis Presley to Simon Garfunkel, you name them. He wanted, he wanted us to be, in, uh, be a studio band in Nashville, but we were too wild. We couldn't do that. We, we wanted to do our own thing or we weren't going to do it at all. Yeah, the studio band, you guys got to hold back a lot. Like, yeah, I would say. You mean we go to we go to work carrying a brown <laughs> paper bag with a lunch in with a sandwich in it? <laughs> uh, read these charts, and usually kind of going back to being in between minimal and not minimal at the same time. Like for <laughs> you know, there's like lusciousness yeah. to tracks like that, but it's also like, well, tone it back, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, it, it's it's. Uh... You know, 
too wild. We, we, we were uncontrollable. Is that a byproduct in what is Mock Show? Mock Show. Mock Show is German for make show. And, you know, you, like last night, I said to my wife, look, he's making show. He's laying on the floor playing his guitar, you know, that kind of stuff. So did the, that, like, excitement and we can't be studio bound, is that from, like, I mean, years of doing six-hour, eight-hour-long sets of constantly having to be on and to some degree, you know what I mean? Like, to constantly be, yeah. like, fighting the audience for a smidge of attention so they stick around and the club owner's like, here's your, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, Well, the studio band, they tell you what to do. You, you, in a way, you, you don't do what you're doing. You're doing what, as an example, uh, at that time, um, Mick Jagger was going to do a, you're going to do a solo album. They were talking about it, and we would have to do what he wanted to do. You know, he says I don't want to be like I don't want to play Mick Jagger songs. But of course, you know that was it was kind of naive of us. You know, we were being very naive because if, if 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 I would have done what they told me, what they wanted me to do. I probably would have made a lot more money. <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, the, the, is the money worth the self-expression? Like, ooh. but it, you know, it's nice. It's nice to be able to eat for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 good to be able to eat. <laughs> That's a definite. Um, so I guess like, kind of like a jump back again in the in the midst of like discovering this fire of feedback and like um trying to trying to like hone that and make that into your guys's collaborative style of of music to what became the uber beat what became the monks like what did that kind of process look like was it just like laying down a beat and jamming and having everyone as everyone adds their stuff to this beat and then gary would write lyrics over it yeah well, no, we would all write lyrics, and then we would put, put them all together and then tear, tear them all apart, just leaving a skeleton to see what kind of message it had. And so, in a sense, you everybody's writing lyrics, but all together, it, it's too much, too much lyrics, but then you... You kind of. I think. I think this is talking about how to do now. How to do now. How. Uh, okay. So then. Okay. Get rid of all these. Get. Get rid of all these excess words. Just. Just this. 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 That would be it. Okay. So was it like a kind of like okay. Everyone just free write ideas that fit with this, and then we pull them apart, or was there kind of like a topic like this is, like a how to do now like or monk time like what's that mean then tearing into each bit yeah well monk time was our first song that we wrote and it it had a lot of uh, a lot more words in it and where, where gary talks about uh us everybody being monks you know and uh but we thought well we're monks why can't everybody be monks you know 
then we argue. Well, I don't know. You, what do you say? Everybody's going to be monks? You're kidding. Well, yeah, you can be a monk. I can be a monk. What about girls? Well, they can be a monk too if they want. Well, it opens up the then it becomes part. You're in it now. Like, it, yeah, it's a it's expertly written. When did like was it the simplicity like the discovering the fire? Was the high? Was it clear that the highlight was minimalism, or was this kind of a conversation due to everything else that was going around that minimalism kind of became the like, the the goal or the like kind of philosophical stretch to that? Well, we I think I think that minimalism was part of it. We uh, our managers talked us into being more simple, you know. And we, and by following their advice, is to keep it simple, you guys. You know, we then there was uh, Steve Rice, a lot of minimalist uh, uh, composers were out, and uh, was, it seemed like something that might be acceptable. Well, I guess that that gives the branching concept. Did like, uh, and I guess as far as like monk time. The question I had on that was like, there's that the the rules of being a monk that the um, I think it was Carl and those guys wrote up for you. Oh, the the list of things. Yeah, was that kind of inspired after or before like some of the monk songs existed? Well, that was inspired afterwards when we started doing performing as a monks. Then the managers had this great idea. It says. Okay, you guys, you you gotta you gotta give them a message, and so everybody's, you know, if you're a Beatle, you gotta do this, you gotta do that, you gotta do this. If you're uh, if you're the monks, you gotta be exactly the opposite, you know. And so yeah. we, in a sense, we became like the Beatles. We became the anti-Beatles. It was like we were the Antichrist. But that's that's also that kind of minimalist thing that's it's it's really interesting they really like kind of honed in on that um and it, watching some of like carl's coke not coca-cola um whatever that soda those ads he had this dude was pretty wild man yeah so for for them to kind of like jump in and like see you guys like did they they found you guys through the clubs right yeah they saw us in playing in stuttgart where we were experimenting with the audience a lot and we'd be bored. And one night, these two guys were in there. They were dressed in suits and stuff. And we thought, hmm, something weird about them. I don't know what they're doing here. But afterwards, they come up to the stage and told us they wanted to have a meeting with us. And so they, we went to their place, and, and they showed us their advertisements. One of them did a minimalist advertisement for Volkswagen. That kind of stuff says we can we can make you guys uh you know stars says yeah okay we'll do it you know yeah but i guess was that type of advertising really popular in german culture like were you seeing that everywhere no not really but you know um do you remember an advertisement about a, a volkswagen beetle out in the middle of a just a nowhere, just by itself. <laughs> Got a point. 
<laughs> well, that's that's the kind of stuff they did, you know. Yeah. And it was them that did it, you know. Because I being a whole different culture, you know, jumping into a whole other world. Yeah. I'd, well, knows? yeah. I I think that, I think that the the monks really you can sort of say it's 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 two cultures. It's it's American and German in a way, you know. There's something about it that it feels that is not totally American and not totally German, you know. What What do you think is is the if you had to like kind of pick the what is what is would like the American side of it be like the music and like the the minimal and be the German side of it or like what do you think those those kind of divides? Well, are? I think that yeah, I think that the minimalist part would be a little bit more German than American. But then the rock and roll, you know, that's American. Very much so. Um, One question I had was with the recording process of the first record of the of Black Monk Time, does, like, there, there was something that's in the book that said, like, you had to ramp the... Because you guys were so loud, you couldn't be in the same spot at the same time. But you couldn't be too far away to not cue each other with the kind of yeah like... well that's because we had uh we one of the things we worked for was tension in our music and by tension you'd stretch things out not in eight bars or four bars but maybe 17 or or 15 or something some odd thing you know and you have to count them and actually the music sounds simple but it's it's very difficult to play because you're you're constantly counting and uh it's uh what was the question again <laughs> uh, well because well on a side note that's very kind of brubecking like the the add musical tension in that sense that's a very specific place to build tension because you can build tension with sharp, you know, dissonant harmonies and can build up in dynamics, but to build tension with form in a minimalistic, big-scale idea, that's a really, like, um, tense thing. You know, harping on a chorus for, like, a couple bars way too long, you know, compared to, like, a standard whatever everyone's used to hearing, pop tune really gets that kind of head turner that what where's this that's the feedback of structure did um did was that another thing you guys were experimenting with um as the torque is playing out was form like that well yeah we 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 didn't practice the the minimalist form or the tension so much but we realized by watching the audiences and all that stuff that one thing that we needed to get their attention was we had to put tension into the song because you'd, you'd see them there waiting for, they expect, okay, you play eight bars, they expect it to change, and it doesn't change. They sit there and they watch, and all of a sudden it changes, and you see their heads, their eyes blink or something, you know. So you, you, you watch you watch what's going on with them. <clears throat> and that's what uh, that's what our managers picked up on. And the, the, the go back, my question was because you guys had this problem in the studio of having to cue each other 
for these strange. Oh, like, right. How did they yeah. fix that? <laughs> like, well, they put us. We the studio was like a big auditorium, and they put us in various corners, but facing each other, so we we could see each other over a long distance. You know. And then they had to then to get the 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 resonance to work right. They had to they ran a big thirty foot brown piece of tape over a doorknob into a into a into the recorder for a, a, a very long sort of echo. Otherwise, otherwise it'd be all mash. Yeah, that part's fascinating to me. Like uh, the uh, analog, like tape working, like like who knows not to open that door? <laughs> like, how does that? Like, yeah. how's the doorknob the right amount of time for that? The echo <clears throat> compared to like the the cabinet in the middle or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, the 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 thing was, everybody was happy. The managers got to got to experiment. We got to experiment. And and the the producer Jimmy Bovine from Polydor Records, he got to experiment. Everybody was experimenting. That's that's another interesting thing too. Is like when everyone gets to kind of break form and like have fun a little bit and try something new and something that shouldn't work or might not work and find out. There's such like a little magic within that, and that's so cool that everyone on that that production of that record got to do that. Well, yeah. And the thing is, is, uh, I think the most important thing is at least it's my opinion. I don't know if it's everybody else's, but I feel like if you hear the monks, you know, it's the monks because nobody else sounds like them. That is very, very true. And just musically, instrumentally, uh, instrumentally, um, production-wise, it's such a unique and powerful sound. Um, to kind of jump into, so down the line, you guys are playing. There's one show I wanted to ask about. Um, I'm sure, and you get a lot of questions about it, but you guys played with Hendrix. Yeah, we played with Hendrix in Kiel, Germany. Was he was he a cool dude? Did you get to interact or pick his brain at all? What was that? Like? <clears throat> well, I felt I I watched him. I, we have some pictures of him, but they somebody took them. They they disappeared on us. But uh, I'd sure like to find those photos, whatever happened to him. But uh, he he was a quiet dude. He didn't talk much, and he sat out in the audience and watched us play. And he 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 was just like us. People were afraid of us. People wouldn't talk to us because of our appearance. You know what I mean? Like where they were afraid we're we're uh, I don't know maybe it's their upbringing or something, but people kids wouldn't look at us in the eye, you know. And Jimi Hendrix was sitting out in the audience, and I was thinking the same thing because he sat out there, and everybody kind of stood clear of him. So there almost like a kind of shared sense of like. Uh, lone adventuring on this like minimalist and free but, yeah, expression. Yeah, the music was totally different, and I was impressed by him. I thought, man, this guy is a great guitar player. <clears throat> but 
that's was that on, on a side kind of was it normal for other acts to come out and watch the other acts or was that weird like because i know some bands like when we play with them they they hide in the back and they wait till they're done like oh yeah you, you guys sounded good from the green room it was it was <laughs> different he yeah it was different he come out and watch this and he was he was he he was kind of curious about our music where did it come from and uh, you know we didn't have any answers for him we said oh well, I don't know it's just you know uh, but he, he uh, one of the things was he was interested in Gary's wow wow pedal he asked Gary what that was and Gary told him and and he was interested in that and he just sat out there and watched us and that, that was unusual that became a big staple for him too the wah wah pedal yeah it was after all of a sudden he was using it you know and I hadn't heard him before but that was before he really took off you know it was it was he doing the same type of circuit well I mean this this had to be like this wasn't like hours of show this was like 45 minute set or something yeah yeah it'd be a 45 minute set those were sh- that's like after years of this and years of playing did you kind of eventually find que- uh, answers for those questions that he had at that time did we find the answers to what questions oh well you said Jimi Hendrix asked you guys some questions about where your music came from and you didn't have answers then but, oh uh, well, yeah. Well, Dave and uh, David and Jimmy were from the same town, Renton, Washington. And in fact, when David died, he was buried seventy feet away from from uh, Jimi Hendrix's Whoa. tomb. Yeah, they're both they're both within eyesight of each other. Like that, like that's a that's fascinating. On a so when the managers pitched the banjo, right? Yeah. Okay. Did you guys have faith in the banjo working at first? Because the banjo's hard to mic up. Like, I've been trying to do one for my banjo just to get the run through a PA clean. <laughs> like, Well, he took the head off of it and put a microphone in it. Straight under it? Oh, no. Oh, no. David. I, yeah. Uh... Oh, like in the body. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. And like, was it okay? Was it was it an easy sell afterwards? Because like, it really is rhythmically. Yeah, it's very sharp, very very clunky, very uh, uh, sharp uh, hit. You know, it's it's like being hit. Yeah. And I guess um, the kind of a couple more questions. And Eddie, I really appreciate your time and taking time out of your day to do this. Um, when you guys got back together and did some of these reunion shows, and the album gets released in America, and like it's a total opposite of this uphill battle, and like I feel like anyone who does anything that, like after you study the structure for so long and you learn that all you have to do is step away from it and just break all these rules you make and you make this new thing, that new thing takes forever to see that process it's almost a reflection of the process of that creation and like 
was it like when you guys got back together to do some of these shows aside it from it being like probably mind blowing was it did you guys fall right into it uh, no it was a we we had to relearn it it was and being older not necessarily wiser just being older we uh we had to contend with each other's egos, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, all of a sudden, everybody had egos. I just but because we'd been away from each other so long, we weren't. Uh, you know, it took a little while for us to get tight again. <clears throat> and then, like with the reactions of playing these reunion shows. Um, well, the reactions were good. I I was just talking to a guy last night who saw us play in Vegas. Yeah, and and he said it was the greatest show we ever saw. And I said, God, I I I always thought that show was one of the worst ones we ever played. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting as a performer, like you may be having an awful day and everything made the monitor doesn't work. You can't tell if you're anywhere near pitch or whatever it may be. And, like, you're just waiting for the night to be over, and then, like, it's like you can't define someone's experience, you know? It's it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. The thing is, is people have heard about the monks. I know that because all of a sudden book sales have taken off. They're going through the roof. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm getting to the point where I'm going to have to find a big distributor or something because I can't handle it anymore. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you make music that's solely, or anything, if you make anything that's solely just an expression and a pure expression of one, not trying to sell anything, just trying to do you and trying to find what you have to say, that's the most inspiring thing because that shows other people they can do it. Yeah, I, anybody can do it. They just got to, and everybody will do it differently if they were different different people. It's in our sense it was a combination, chemistry elements between or DNA between five guys. You know. Well, and it's it's just kind of that doing it. <laughs> yeah, and breaking through that that like perseverance will eventually equal success if you don't stop or or if you wait a while. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> or yeah, well, the thing is, you have to have somebody guide you in a way to say, well, you know, to when you're experimenting and you're young, you'll you'll be a little naive every once in a while. You'll You'll put uh, bad words in something or something like that, and somebody will warn you, say, you know, watch out for that, you know. As the monks, what was, like, some of the, like, guiding principles that kind of really helped out? Uh, I don't know. The guiding principles was just... uh, um, don't smile. <laughs> uh, they tell us not to smile, but we would smile all the time. 
oh, I love that there's that video of you guys on that live performance and Gary's just smiling, winking at the audience. Like <laughs> you guys were having fun and that it sounds so good. That bass tone you got, it's like I don't know how you like that it's distorted, but it sounds so clear and punchy and not like pumped up like I, I it's incredible was that like it was that just cranking it like, no it, it comes from worn out bass speakers oh okay okay well i i overstressed them yeah. they're overstressed and they, they were just perfect for that kind of thing i i i couldn't i couldn't buy anything that would sound like that Speakers are another interesting phenomena, how that works. Like, there's that, that glowing, ripe point in the middle of the speaker's life, or any with like those like tube electronics or those like more analog electronics that you can really like run like that. There's an interesting, like, kind of I don't know, electronic ripeness that really makes it stick out in certain points compared to some of the digital um, tech now. But, um, um, my last question being, uh, with you said you you have seven books in the works or written and just waiting to figure out like are these all well, like I've got, I, I've got eight books out now. I've got uh, Cowboy Like Me, which is short stories based upon my youth, and I got two more volumes of them, and uh, it's fiction. All the names have been changed to protect the guilty, and then. Uh, and then I got uh, Beltrami's River, which is about the discovery of the Mississippi, which I went up and followed this, the trail of this old explorer, Beltrami. And then I have uh, Monk Time, and then I have the Monk Time 2, uh, Passing Through Minnesota. And then I got a new one that's coming out shortly. It's called, uh, uh, what the heck is it called? Oh, God. I can't think of what it's called. <laughs> well, that's that's the writing, like the nonstop doing. Do you still do 60 pages a day or a week? And not right now because I'm, cause I've been interrupted by selling books. <laughs> that's incredible, though. That's awesome. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather write. I don't want to sell books. Well, and I think that one that well that speaks very highly of you, like and very highly of what you do. It's the process of it. It's the doing of it, and like the the marketing, and the sales, and the uh, capital end of it is a byproduct of it. And that's that's the beauty of art and creation. And I think the hear you say that is very inspiring. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, Eddie. I really appreciate your time, your music, and your writing. And I'm very excited to hear that you need to figure out more because you're selling more books, man. That's incredible. Well, Davey, I thank you for uh, calling and enjoyed my conversation with you. And I uh, hope everything goes well for you. All right. Well, thank you, man. <laughs> Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig at the Gig Podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang.